0: This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Man, what a reading. Good morning, Anchor Church. My name is Matt. Great to see you here today, especially if you're new or visiting. We really hope that you are blessed by your time with us. You guys well? Good, I'm glad. Well, we're going to dive into Hebrews chapter 1 this morning. I'm going to pray for us. Keep your Bibles or your phones open in that passage, and we're going to get stuck into God's Word. So let me pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks, and we don't want to take that lightly, that you have communicated, that you have revealed yourself. We thank you that you've not left us guessing, that we can know you Father, as we come before you in your word this morning, we ask that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. We pray that you would help us to see Jesus for who he is. Give us fresh eyes. We ask that you would transform our worship, that we would be a people of bended knee. We ask that you would do this work by your spirit powerfully in us, and we pray this in Jesus' strong name, and all of God's people said... Amen. Well, this morning we start a six-week series in the book of Hebrews, which I am really excited about. Uh, We've called this series Burn Your White Flags, um, and I'm really, really, really pumped about this series. But you might be thinking, if you know anything of the book of Hebrews, you might be thinking, why Hebrews? Like it's full of all this Old Testament jargon, like high priests and Temple and blood sacrifice and Melchizedek, whoever that guy is, like he's the most random person in the whole Bible, what's he even doing there? Who is he? Why Hebrews? Like I was planning on bringing a friend in the next couple of weeks, and now you've ruined that by preaching on Hebrews. But I actually think Hebrews is necessary and important for every generation of Christians. See, this is a, it's actually a sermon that was written to second-generation believers, second-generation Christians, of the importance of not walking away from Jesus, because every generation faces that temptation. Now, sure, the thing that is tempting us might vary and change over time, but the temptation itself is not unique to any generation. We all need to be reminded not to walk away from Jesus. But I think this is actually important for our generation for a number of reasons, I think it's important for us in this moment that we find ourselves because we are living in a context where we are experiencing pressure on our beliefs, pressure on our faith. We live in a time of um, secularism, a worldview that says there is no God, uh, a worldview that leans on naturalism that says that the only things that we hold to be true and real are the things we can see, touch and test. And that discounts any form of the supernatural, of of a, a, a divine being. And this worldview shapes so much of how our world thinks and operates. We swim in the waters of a world that is clashing with our beliefs. And there is a pressure for us to give up, to walk away. Hebrews is vitally important for the church. We're also living in a period of time where people, Christian people, are giving up on their faith. Uh, The rise of the deconstructors, uh, and deconstruction is happening all across our world at the moment, culturally. But the problem with deconstruction is when you begin to dismantle something, if you don't rebuild, you have no framework for your system of belief. And so... People begin to deconstruct the Scriptures and then at the end of their deconstruction are left with no belief at all. We're li- living in the time of the, the rise of the post-everything generation, right? We're the post-evangelical generation. We're the ones who have decided to walk away from the faith of our parents, or perhaps not the faith of our parents, but the brand of faith of our parents, and we've decided to turn up to a cool urban hipster edgy church because that kind of suits our needs a bit better. And there is a danger in that. There's some healthy pendulum swinging, but sometimes the pendulum swings too far. We're in the moment of um, our culture celebrating those who were once leaders in our church world who have now taken a position of doubt or a lack of faith altogether and are sharing their stories. And those stories are being celebrated by our secular media because that's the narrative they want to hear. We're told that our faith, our worldview, has no place in the public square to be quiet about what we believe. There is pressure. We're also, at a really personal level, just after 20 something years of being in ministry, grieved when people decide to walk away from Jesus altogether give up on Christian community, tap out of the race, and stop following Jesus. And as a pastor, that's heartbreaking to watch. And so this series, this book, this preach, this sermon that we read here is a passionate plea from the author not to give up, not to tap out, to continue to run the race, to continue to endure to the end. Hebrews is for anyone who has ever been tempted to stop following Jesus. And if we're honest with ourselves, I think we've all had that thought cross our minds. Is this worth it? Like, is Jesus really worth giving everything to follow every day? If you've ever been tempted to give up on this race, then Hebrews is for you. We've decided to call this series Burn Your White Flags. And I think we've got the sermon Graphic up there. And the reason that we've called that is, um, is because Hebrews really captures this idea of saying no surrender. And to burn your white flags is an aggressive way of saying no surrender, no turning back, no giving up. In fact, in a military sense, if you burn your white flag, you eradicate even the possibility of surrender. There's nothing to wave at that point. And so we want to say, we want to take this step of intentionality to say, we, I'm not giving up. I'm going to run this race till the end. I'm going to burn my white flag. And so really, this is an invitation for every single one of you to incinerate the possibility of ever walking away from Jesus, to burn our white flags. Hebrews, as I've already mentioned, is a sermon. It's a preach. And we don't really know who wrote it. We've, plenty of people have had a guess, and we've really got no idea. But it's written to... Jewish followers of Jesus, that is, people who were ethnically Jewish, who had converted from Judaism to put their faith and trust in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And these followers of Jesus were facing a particular pressure to default back to their old ways, to go back to the old covenant, to go back to the law, to go back to the sacrificial system. This is a second generation believing community and they're living in a time where the temple is still standing probably, which meant that every time they walked past the temple or past the synagogue, they were reminded of what they had left and they felt the pressure from their family, from their community, from the social context around them To give up following Jesus and to go back to the Judaism of their former days. To go back to the law. To go back to the sacrificial system. The author of Hebrews writes to help these followers of Jesus see that he is so much better than anything that they could possibly be tempted to go back to. That he is superior to all of it. Now, our unique temptation in 2020 in Sydney is not to default back to the worship of angels or the sacrifice of lambs. That's probably not your proclivity, I'm guessing. It's not mine either. But we do face the temptation to default back to living by sight instead of faith. We do face the temptation of operating out of the flesh instead of the spirit. We face the temptation to go back all the time and our temptation might look different but it's real nonetheless. We're tempted to wave the white flag, to give up, to stop walking, to tap out of the race, and to give in. And I believe that it is only as we begin to capture again the significance and the worth and the majesty and the glory of Jesus that we will be able to cling to the hope that we have in Christ, over the next five weeks, we're going to see that Jesus is better. He's better than uh, he, he's a better sacrifice. He's a better guide. He's a better mediator. He is better. He is better than everything that we could possibly go back to. And when we realize how significant Jesus is, it would be crazy of us to return to our former ways. I remember in high school. Um, and perhaps this betrays my age a little bit, but I remember in high school when the science teacher said to us, we're going to watch a movie in science. Like, yeah, awesome. The problem is the type of TV we watched it on looked a bit like this. Does anyone remember that? In fact, if you look close enough, it says DVD on the bottom of that, uh, under that Toshiba sign. But in my year 10 science class, it actually said VHS. And the teacher would put this thing called a VHS tape in there. Anyone remember what they are? Right? They, they would put the VHS tape into the machine, and it would spin, and it would play, and an image would come on the screen. And it was so small that if you were sitting in the back row, like I did, because you know I was a cool kid. I always sat in the back row, Right you couldn't see anything that was happening in there. And that was a significant problem with all the kids that had ADHD, to not be able to see the image and just hear what was happening. It was like a no-brain. I don't even know why the science teacher ever thought a a movie was going to be a good idea. But this is what we watched it on. I don't know if you realize, but we are now in the era of 8K technology. 8K. That means 8,000 pixels of resolution. So if you have a look up here, in the top... Your left-hand corner, that's standard definition, 480 by 480. That's what we all peered at in year 10 science. We now have 8K and we're getting to 10K and 12K. I don't even know what happens after that. But we're in the era of 8K, which means that when my kids watch a movie in class, which seems to happen a lot for kindergarten, they have a giant smart board that they watch this huge big screen TV on. It's better than home. Now, it would be crazy if you had this 8K resolution on offer to you to choose willingly to go back to 480 by 480 VHS. The quality of this is nothing compared to the ultra-high-definition vivid colors and deep, rich blacks that are on offer in 8K resolution. And what the author of Hebrews will do for us over and over and over again is say, you are here. You have an 8K vision, version of faith. Don't go back to standard definition. Don't default back, because when you do, you don't just downgrade you miss out altogether. The author of Hebrews will compare and contrast time and time again the new versus the old in order to remind his listeners, his hearers, that it is worth staying here because it is better by far. It's superior by far. And that's very easy to see when it comes to a television resolution. But the reality is in our hearts Sometimes standard definition, whatever that is, looks so appealing to us. And we need a reminder that Jesus is worthy, that it is worth staying here. And so the the verses that open up for us in Hebrews chapter 1 here, the author will begin to do this comparison of old and new. And what he does throughout the book of Hebrews is he compares the old covenant to the new covenant. The old covenant is it's a preparation for the new. It's incomplete. Well the new covenant is complete. It all points to Jesus. The old covenant is shadow. The new covenant is reality. The old covenant is temporary. The new covenant is eternal. The old covenant is partial and incomplete. And the new covenant is complete and full. He's going to compare and contrast and say, look at what you have in Christ. Don't let go of this. It's too good. And we see that happening in Hebrews chapter 1, the first three verses. Now, for the rest of this series, we're going to go through like sometimes three to four chapters at a time. But to begin, we're just going to camp out on these first three verses. And they are some of the, the loftiest verses about who Jesus is in all of the Bible. Like we're soaring through the clouds on top of mountains here when it comes to theology. It's one giant sentence in the original language, and it just runs on and says thing after thing after thing after thing about Jesus. It's like when you go to the beach and you get caught in a set and you go under the wave, you come up, there's another wave. You go under the wave, you come up, there's another wave. And the author of Hebrews just wants to roll over the top of you with these truths about who Jesus is. And what he does here is he unpacks all of the things that he will go into greater detail about later on in his message. And we're going to look at Jesus this morning from Hebrews chapter 1. Seven things Jesus is. Seven things. He's God's best word. If you're taking notes, here are the seven points. He is God's best message to the world. He is heir of all things. He is the creator of everything. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact imprint of his nature. He is the means of purification for sins. And he is sitting at the Father's right hand. Is that seven? Seven, for those who can count. Seven's the perfect number. What a great number of points to have, but we're going to fly through them. So let's go. Point number one, Jesus is God's best message. Come back to verse one with me. It says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And we just need to pause at the fact that Hebrews tells us God spoke. That's staggering. That God spoke. That He has not left us to guess or live in darkness about His character, who He is. Now He has revealed Himself. He has demonstrated to the world that He made, this is who I am. He's shown Himself. And that's a staggering truth. And that sets Christianity apart from every other worldview because we don't have to guess what God's like, he's shown us what he's like. And we see that in Jesus. We see here this contrast between long ago, which sounds like the start of a Star Wars movie in a galaxy far, far away, long ago at many times and in many ways, he contrasts long ago within these last days. Now, contrary to popular belief, in these last days is not like the crazy stuff that happens in Revelation just before Jesus returns. The last days is the time between Christ's ascension back to the Father and His return to reign as King. So that means that we are living in the last days. Everything from His ascension to when He comes back is the last days. So long ago, God spoke through the prophets. He spoke through Uh, people. He spoke through a still, small whisper. He even spoke through a donkey. Like God has spoken through all these means. And as amazing as that communication was, it was incomplete. It lacked. But now in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, And his final revelation in Jesus is complete. He has nothing definitive left to say to us than what we have about the life of Jesus and the ministry of the apostles, the eyewitnesses, that what was recorded in this book, the Word of God. This is God's ordinary and primary means of communicating to us. The Bible that you hold in your hand. This is where we read of the life, death, resurrection, ministry of Jesus. Now, that's not to say that God doesn't still speak through prophets and a word of knowledge or a conviction from the Spirit. Of course, those things are true. And we know they're true because we read about Him in our Bibles. But what it does say is that God has given us everything we need. He has revealed Himself fully, completely, and finally in the person of Jesus. We're not waiting for anything next There is no Jesus 2.0. There is no other prophet to come. He was the final prophet of God, fully revealed. Which means that if you're here this morning and you wouldn't necessarily call yourself a Christian, it means that we're calling people to belief on the basis of what is written in this book and not someone's subjective dream or vision or personal experience of God. No, no, we, we invite you to open the pages of the Gospels and read what happened in a time and a place and in a context. And examine the evidence for yourself. It's objective, it's not subjective. God has chosen to reveal himself in the most perfect way and given access to Everyone. In the pages of the New Testament. He's revealed himself. And he's revealed himself fully and completely. So if you want to know God. If you want to know what he's like. Then look at the face of Jesus. Look at the life of Jesus. And the ministry of Jesus. And the words of Jesus. Jesus is God's best message to the world. Secondly. Secondly. Jesus is heir of all things. He is heir of all things. One of the things you'll notice about the message of Hebrews is that it's a sermon. And the writer of Hebrews is preaching and his text for his preach happens to be the Old Testament. And time and time again throughout the book of Hebrews, he will quote an Old Testament passage, sometimes he will allude to an Old Testament passage or just kind of like vaguely kind of summarize it or say, you know, somewhere in the Old Testament it says something along these lines. But he is preaching from the Old Testament as his text to demonstrate how Jesus fulfills fulfills those things. And here, when he says that Jesus is the heir of all things, there is potentially an allusion back to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2 is what's called a messianic psalm, a psalm that is all about God's anointed king. Now, we know that that anointed king is not just King David, but the one who was promised to follow King David, Jesus, the Messiah of the line of David. And God invites his anointed to pray this prayer, to make this request of him that he wishes to grant. This is what it says in Psalm chapter 2, verse 8. God says to his anointed one, to his Messiah, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Jesus owns everything. He owns everything. Everything that the Father has, by virtue of the fact that he created it, is his. He gives it to his Son as an inheritance Jesus owns everything. That means the entire universe. Everything that you can see with your eyes and touch with your hands and all of the things that you can't, he owns it all. From every tiny grain of sand on a beach to the galaxies of the universe, he owns it. Jesus owns every subatomic particle and every mountain range. He owns it all. Love that very famous quote from Abraham Kuyper who says, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. It all belongs to him. He inherits the universe. Now that means that he owns you and me. We are a part of this world, part of this creation, a part of physical matter, existence, and material. He owns you, irrespective of your worldview this morning. Atheist, agnostic, apathetic, Christian, whatever it is. Whether you agree with that statement or not, there is a time coming where Jesus will return as King of kings and Lord of lords, and every knee, willingly or unwillingly, will bow and confess with their lips that He is Lord. Because he owns everything. It's all his. He owns the world. And the reason that he owns the world is also the third thing Jesus is the agent of creation. He created it all, He created everything. And Jesus is not like an assembly line worker. You know, someone who works in a factory and just takes one part and sticks it on one and then pushes it down the line, the next person does it. That, that's not how it works for Jesus, right? He is the source of everything that exists. Co-creator alongside his Father. You remember in Genesis, God says to the Son along with the Spirit, let us create. And they spoke and creation came into existence. Think of those verses from Colossians 1 where it says that all things were made for him, through him, by him, and in him. Jesus is God's agent of creation, and everything exists because of his work. Everything. That's why he owns it all, because he made it all. You build a house, you pay the bank for it, you own it. It's yours. Jesus created the cosmos, and everything that he has created is his. He's God's best message to the world, best revelation of himself. He is the heir and owner of all things because he's the creator of all things. Fourth, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. This is getting big, right? I mean, if you came here with a small view of Jesus, you'd be like, what is happening? This, this ought to cause us to fall flat on our faces in worship. But there's more. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Have a look at what it says there in verse 3. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. What does that mean? Sometimes I read a verse in the Bible, I'm like, there is so much in there. I don't even know what it means. I don't even know where to start. Let's just start breaking down word by word by word so we can understand the richness of this meal of theology that the author is dealing, dishing up for us. He is the radiance of the glory of God. I think we're familiar with that term radiance. And perhaps a picture of um, nature might help us. If you think about the big ball of burning fire that exists in our universe, the sun, the S U N sun, and how we experience the sun, is that we experience the sun as our eyes see the rays and our skin feels the heat that it generates. It emanates from its source. And as heat is and rays are to the sun in the universe, so Jesus is to the Father. He radiates all of God's glory. It emanates out of Jesus. I love what Sam Storm's uh, a Christian author says. He says, everything that makes God God is experienced in Jesus. Everything that makes God, God, is experienced in Jesus. All of the Father's glory is experienced in Jesus. He is the physical manifestation of the presence and glory of God on earth. You know, the temple is a really key theme in the book of Hebrews. You'll see it come up over and over again. Because that's what people walked past. That was their default temptation to go back to, the temple. And so the author of Hebrews will talk a lot about the temple and all of the worship that occurred in the temple. And the temple and the precursor of the temple, the tabernacle, was God's way of dwelling with his people and his glory resting on earth. In the middle of the temple, the holy of holies, the Shekinah glory of the Lord was said to dwell amidst the cherubim and above the Ark of the Covenant, the glory of the Lord was there. And the glory of the Lord was covered by a, a massive curtain that protected people. That's why, in uh, in Leviticus, we see the Day of Atonement. The priest has to offer a sacrifice for the cleansing of the temple because the sins of the people have polluted the physical presence where God was said to dwell. And so, blood needed to be shed for the purity of the temple. And along comes Jesus, and he will say, "I am the temple." Knock this temple down and I'll rebuild it in three days. Because in Jesus, the full glory of God has come to tabernacle, to dwell, John 1.14, on earth. It's the miracle of the incarnation. That in Jesus, everything that makes God, God, is experienced. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Wow. Wow. that's not all. The second half of verse 3 says that he is the exact imprint of his nature. Number five, he is the exact imprint of God's nature. In the first century, as, as is true today, what was put on the back of a coin was often an engraving of a ruler or an emperor. And so you would look at a first century coin and find some kind of inscription or engraving that was a mark marker or a description of a person now that's true for us today if you turn over your 50 cent coin you'll see a portrait of who it's not a rhetorical question the queen queen elizabeth ii and i was thinking about it this week what happens when she dies because man that has got to be close she is ancient right what happens when she dies? Do we have to get new coins, or like I don't even know? Someone—it's uh, been bugging me all week. What happens when the queen dies? Maybe they'll just get rid of coins because I mean, uh, cashless society would be so helpful if they eradicated surcharges. But anyway, story for another day. We have on the back of all of our coins an inscription, an engraving, an imprint, and as you look at it, you know, Queen of England. Queen Elizabeth II, it's a description of her identity. And we know that as we look at it. Jesus, and the writer of Hebrews takes this metaphor and says, Jesus is the exact imprint of the Father's nature. The exact imprint. There is nothing of the Father's character, his glory, his majesty, his justice, his holiness that Jesus lacks. All of God's character is found in Christ. The exact imprint of the Father. He is the true and trustworthy picture of God. And so that means if we want to know God, which if you follow Jesus, that ought to be the beating heart of our lives, is that we would know God. If we want to know God, Look no further than the person, work, life, and ministry of Jesus. He reveals God to us perfectly. So, Jesus is God's best message to the world. He is heir of creation, He is the uh, creator of all things. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's nature. But there's more. Can you believe it? The author says this He is sustaining the universe. In verse 3, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that verse, I had this kind of picture in mind when I read the verse. Have we got that? That's the kind of picture I had in mind, right? Jesus, like Spider-Man, flexing his muscles, holding up the universe. That's the picture that comes to mind for me. But as I did some research and reading and study this week into this verse, that's not actually what this means. That Jesus somehow is flexing his massive biceps and holding the universe up like Spider-Man in America, Captain America Civil War. Right? No, what this verse actually means is that Jesus is carrying the universe to its intended end and completion. Not holding it up, but carrying it to its intended Completion point, to its intended purpose. And the intended purpose of creation is that it would glorify and magnify the Father. That the glory of the Lord would cover the face of the earth as the waters cover the sea. Jesus is making that happen. That's a staggering thought and reality. Every single thing about our universe is sustained by Jesus. And I reckon that means that when, there there really are no laws of science at that point. Gravity only exists because Jesus says that gravity should exist every time. And when it doesn't, we call it a miracle. It's supernatural. But it just so happens that Jesus decided in, in that moment that gravity would cease to exist. That a miracle would occur. He is sustaining the whole universe, holding it together and dragging it to its intended completion point where Jesus will sit on his throne and God will gather the nations and bring all things together under one head, Jesus Christ. A staggering thought. He is sustaining the universe and he does so by the word of his power. Lastly, second last, sorry. He is the means of purification. Come back to verse three. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. After making purification for sins. Has anyone ever read the book of Leviticus here? Anyone read Leviticus? And you get like a few chapters in, you're like, what is happening here? What is with all these laws? And there's like laws on top of laws on top of laws. It's like law cubed, you know, like, and all of these laws about cleanliness and holiness and mildew and not weaving two types of cloths together, you're like, what is happening here? What is going on? Reality is that what is behind all of these laws about purity and cleanliness are two things. The first is God wanted His people, Israel, to be distinct, to be different than the other nations around Him. And these laws about being clean and not eating certain things made God's people uniquely different from every other nation around them. The second thing that's connected to the first is that because God is holy, like perfect, like white, hot, perfect holiness, there is no corner of darkness in God's character at all. That means in order to worship God, to draw near to God, to approach God, cleanliness and purity is paramount. That's why there's an offering for the cleansing and the purification of the people and the temple and the artifacts. Because God is holy. His people are holy. His people are set apart, different and distinct. And Hebrews is going to demonstrate for us that Jesus is the one effective sacrifice that brings purity and cleansing for all time. That what the high priest did over and over and over and over again, Jesus does once. And he offers us purity and cleansing. Finally, number seven. Jesus is sitting at God's right hand. He's God's best message to the world. He's heir of all things, creator of all things, the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his being He's upholding the universe. He's a means of purification. And he's sitting at the Father's right hand. Is that eight? I can't even count. Who knows? Somewhere, seven or eight. Take it, take it or pick it. Is someone taking notes? You can tell me what actually just happened then. He is sitting at the Father's right hand. You know, if you were to walk into the temple in the first century, you will notice a distinct lack of a seat. No seats. Very different from church. There's seats everywhere in church, right? But you to walk into the temple, you'll notice of all the artifacts, the lampstands that were there, and the table that was there, and the altar, and then the curtain, and into the holy of holies, the cherubim, and the ark of the covenant. No seat. There's no seat in the temple, because the priest stood to minister. This is what it says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 and 12. And every priest stands stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for one, for all time, a single sacrifice for sins, he did what? He sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down. Jesus sits because he's got no more work to do. He offers... The one effective sacrifice and he is done. It's finished. It's complete. That's why he cries out, it's finished from the cross. And yet somehow we think that we still have this thing that we need to contribute to what Jesus did or or we dredge our past sins out of the bottom of the ocean and hold them up in front of ourselves and lay them on his guilt and Jesus says, it's done. I'm, I'm finished with that. I'm sitting, and he sits at the Father's right hand where he acts as our mediator, whispering to the Father, I've paid it for them. That one, they're mine. And not only does he sit because his work is finished, he sits in a position of majesty. You see, sitting at the Father's right hand was not a seat that just any person could sit in. It was a seat of dignity and honor and majesty. It's the seat. Where God's King would sit. And Jesus takes his seat as the ruling, reigning, and risen King of God's kingdom, seated at the Father's right hand. And that ought to bring massive assurance for us that Jesus has done everything, that there is nothing that can now separate us from the love of Christ. He's done all that was required of the Father to pay for sin and to cleanse us and to make us clean. Now, I don't know about you, as you step back and you look at that picture of Jesus, honestly, you could preach a sermon on all seven or eight of those points. But as you step back and you look at that picture of Jesus, it ought to make us weak at the knees and bow in worship. You know, I don't know if you remember that movie Talladega Nights with Will Ferrell and um, John C. Riley and the guy who played Borat, what's his name? (laughs) Sacha Baron Cohen, that's it, right? You remember that movie? There's a scene in that movie where they sit down to dinner. It's a bountiful harvest of Taco Bell and Domino's and KFC and Powerade, or Gatorade, one of the two. And uh, there is this moment where Will Ferrell says grace at the dinner table. Everyone remember that scene? He opens, he starts praying, to baby Jesus. And his father in law, Chip, who happens to have a manky leg, says, Why are you praying to Jesus, the baby? You don't, you realize he grew up, he became a man. And Will Ferrell says, Well, I prefer the Christmas version better. I prefer the baby Jesus. And so he goes on to pray to eight ounce, six pound little baby Jesus in your golden fleece diaper, all tiny yet still omnipotent. And then John C. Riley chimes in, he's like, Yeah, I like to think of Jesus wearing a tuxedo t-shirt. You know, he's like all formal but also ready to party. And then the kids chime in, like, yeah, I like to think of Jesus like a ninja fighting off evil samurais. And John C. Riley comes back, he's like, Yeah, I like to think of Jesus with massive angel wings singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinner, and I'm in the front row and I'm hammered drunk, and they're all cheering, and and look. We can be offended at a thing like that, but I think it's actually poking fun at nominal evangelicalism and the way that we pray and carry on. But here's the deal. I think for the most part our world thinks, well I can just pick and choose which Jesus I like. I like the baby version better because he's pretty powerless at that point. I like I like the loving version of Jesus, you know, the love your enemies bit, yeah, cool. I like I like the, the the version of Jesus that says good moral ethical things. Do we, do we like the thing about Jesus where it says that he is the Lord of all, that he demands our allegiance? Do we like the bit about Jesus where it says he's coming back to judge the world? Do we, we can't just pick and choose which version of Jesus we happen to prefer. We need to let Jesus speak for himself. It seems weird to me that we live in a context where We give everyone the right to declare of themselves, this is my identity. That's the world we live in. And yet when it comes to Jesus, we refuse him the right to speak for himself. I want to challenge those of you who, if you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus, allow him to speak for himself. Read the scriptures. Find out what he claimed. Don't just assume Don't put a label on Jesus that he never gave himself because he never claimed to be a spiritual guide or a moral teacher. He claimed nothing short than being the son of God and the king of the universe. So let's let Jesus speak for himself and make our assessment of him based on what he says, not some label that someone else gave him. And if you're a Christian here this morning, if you... You say, yeah, I am a follower of Jesus. I do worship Him. What does your worship look like? I think we need to recover a healthy view of the Lordship of Jesus. That He's King over everything. And that means that we don't get to pick and choose the areas of our life that we surrender to Jesus. We have to surrender all of it. It's all or nothing with Him. He demands our pure, wholehearted allegiance because of who He is, because of what He's done. To worship Jesus, give Him the honor and the glory the praise that He deserves. You know, my hope for 2020 for our church, for my life, for your life, for your gospel communities, that this would be the year where we experience more of God more of his grace, more of his power, more of his word, more of his presence, more of his community that he's built together, that we would experience more of God. And I'm telling you, we will never get there if we do not elevate Jesus to the place that he deserves to be elevated to. Nothing short of Hebrews 1, 1 to 3 will do if we lower Jesus, if we make Jesus just a little bit better than ourselves, we become irrelevant. He is King of kings, Lord of lords. He is the risen, reigning, and ruling King. And He demands our all because He's worthy. You might be thinking, is is He worth giving everything to follow? Like, is he worth the sacrifices that I have to make? Is he worth perhaps career progression? Is he worth following when I'm waiting for someone that just does not seem to be turning up? Is he worth the financial sacrifice? Is he he worth it? And Hebrews 1 screams at us, of course he is. Look at this picture of Jesus. My prayer is that you have a fresh vision this morning, maybe even for the first time, of the significance and wonder and glory and bigness of Jesus Christ. This morning we're going to respond to Jesus. And it seems to me that the most fitting way to respond is in worship. We're going to do that in two ways this morning. The first way we're going to do that is by singing songs of praise to Jesus. And I want to encourage you, like our band have picked some great songs this morning. Thank you guys for picking those songs. These songs ought to cause our souls to soar in wonder and glory and praise to Jesus. So let's let's literally lift the roof off this place this morning as we worship Jesus. The second way we're going to do that is by celebrating the Lord's Supper together reminding ourselves of the cleansing work of Jesus. There are four stations around the room this morning with bread and grape juice on each of them. And they are symbols that represent the body and the blood of Jesus. The bread represents his his body that was broken. The grape juice, his blood that was poured out. And we invite those of you who love Jesus to come forward to dip the bread and the grape juice and to eat it and to remember what Jesus has done. Because though our souls were stained by sin, He has washed them clean, whiter than snow. As we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper this morning, let let me remind you of the words from the psalmist in Psalm 51. He says this in a prayer of confession. Purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. And create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. May that be your prayer as you come forward to the tables this morning and celebrate the Lord's Supper together. I'm going to invite you to stand, church as we respond to our God. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you. Oh, what a beautiful picture of Jesus that we have seen this morning. And we pray that by the power of your spirit, our hearts would behold his beauty, his majesty, his glory. Forgive us, Lord, for the times that we have had a small view of Jesus. Open our eyes. Give us a fresh view this morning. Jesus, we worship you. We pray this in his strong name and all of God's people said.